Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are resuming our study through Paul's masterful letter that takes deep theological truths, deep truths about God and applies them to the problems of the church of God in Corinth. As we've seen, that's one of the things that's most helpful about Paul. He shows how everything is theological. Every disagreement, every temptation, every sin, every quarrel in the church, it's all theological. And Christians of every age can derive great benefit from this letter, a letter written to a particular church in the first century Roman Empire because the problems present in Corinth at that time are not particular. They're not unique to Corinth. Indeed, the problems are quite universal. We may dress differently and talk differently and worship in a different time and a different culture, but the problems are still the same. Sin is the problem, and sin hasn't changed. But, encouragingly enough to us, Christ is the solution, and neither has Christ changed. And so with that in mind, let's turn to our text. Paul has opened his letter with a greeting and a call for unity in the first 17 verses. And then he moves into an extended argument against divisions, against factions, tribes within the church. This argument goes all the way into chapter 4. And we won't cover the entire argument, but instead focus our attention on verses 19 through 25. I'll start by reading in verse 18 where Paul makes his opening statement, his thesis statement, and then proceed into 19 through 25 where Paul defends and explains his opening thesis from verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Hear the word of our Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the, discerning, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word for us. Let's pray together. Father, we are weak and needy. Without your word, without your spirit illuminating your word for us, we wouldn't know right from left or up from down. We wouldn't know what is right and what is wrong, what is just and what is sinful. Father, we ask that you would draw near to us by the ministering presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would make Christ and make these pages alive to us. Pick us up in our weakness and show us Christ in all of his majestic strength and glory. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. 
Our passage tonight begins in verse 19 with Paul quoting from the book of Isaiah. Scholars see one or two or perhaps even more allusions to or echoes to Isaiah in the following verses as well. And I'm sure that those texts of woe and condemnation from Isaiah 28 through 33 are swirling around in Paul's mind as he's writing this. Indeed, from our text in chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 3, 23, we see a common theme of six Old Testament quotations, each pointing to God as the one who acts to judge and to save his people in ways that defy human imagination. God's plan from the beginning was to save, to redeem, and to liberate his people through a method and a means that no man could ever imagine. And in doing so, he would be proving that human wisdom is really nothing at all. And that's my first point. See the God who destroys human wisdom. See the God who destroys human wisdom. Verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That was the plan of God revealed in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 29. And Paul sees the cross as a direct fulfillment of that verse. The cross is the means that God has used to bring about his promise of destroying the wisdom of worldly wise men. He has in the cross laid aside all human pretensions of strength and of wisdom. See, man in his wisdom has an elevated view of himself, of his strength, of his power, and of his wisdom and intelligence. And we can see this easily by looking at the philosophies of man in our culture. One simple example is that the modern wise man thinks that he solved the mystery of human origins by concocting the theory of evolution. He thinks in his wisdom that man evolving from a primordial soup or from monkeys is really the foundation of true human knowledge and scientific achievement. But the cross destroys such nonsense by proclaiming instead that there is a God and that God is a creator and he's a holy God and that there is such thing as sin and judgment and a curse. You see, none of those things can you have in a world that evolved from nothing. There can be no sin. There can be no morality, no objective standard of justice or righteousness, no foundational answer of right and wrong. If the world is truly about the survival of the fittest, then the weak and the humble actually have no hope. And worldly power and domination actually become a virtue of survival. Man's wisdom undermines true virtue. You see, for real virtue, you need a holy God for that. And the cross shows you what real virtue in, what real virtue is. But man won't have it. In his wisdom, man rejects God's wisdom. And so God destroys man's wisdom on the cross. And we can see this tendency in ourselves as well, not just out there in the world. We naturally possess a puffed up sense of our own abilities. Our default assumption in a disagreement, for example, is that we remember things accurately, but the other person is mistaken. We are infallible in our memory of of events. And coincidentally, our memory always seems to paint a rosier picture of ourselves than it does of the other person. Maybe you've noticed this in yourself. You're the one that possesses the wisdom to see right through really complex situations. You're the one with the discernment and the intelligence to solve everyone else's problems. They just need to ask me. They need to listen to me and follow my advice. But what does Paul say? In verse 20, 
He asked some questions. Well, where is the wise one? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? These rhetorical questions Paul is using to drive home the point that God has successfully destroyed human wisdom in the cross. The cross is the power of God to demolish human wisdom. I find D.A. Carson helpful here when he points out that God in verse 18 has already stated this point. That God destroying the wisdom of the wise has already been made where God said that the word of the cross is the power of God to those being saved. You see, one might have accepted, expected Paul to say, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the wisdom of God. But that's not what he said, was it? Instead, he insists that it's the power of God. Of course, he'll so, say later that the gospel is also God's wisdom, but he starts off on a different note. And this isn't a slip-up on Paul's part. The point is crucial. Paul does not want the Corinthians to think that the gospel is nothing more than a mere philosophical system over and against the folly of other philosophical systems. It's far more than that. You see, where human wisdom utterly fails to deal with human need, God himself has taken action. We are impotent when it comes to dealing with our sin and being reconciled to God, but where we are impotent, God is powerful. Human folly and human wisdom are equally unable to achieve what God has accomplished on the cross. The gospel is not simply good advice, nor is it good news merely about God's power. The gospel is God's power to those who believe. The place where God has destroyed arrogance and pretension, that's the cross. And so where is the philosopher? Where is the man of this age? Where is the debater? Modern men think they have a coherent view of the world, a worldview that answers all of the questions and makes sense of the world, but they can't even handle the most basic questions of life. Where did we come from? Why, why are we here? Why is there evil? How do we deal with justice in this world? God in the cross reveals the total and complete inadequacies of these human philosophies, whether it's the Stoics and the Epicureans, the Sophists, the Platonists, they were all made fools by the cross. And today, the naturalists, the Marxists, the evolutionists, the postmodernists, the atheists, the agnostics, their combined wisdom is cut down to nothing by the cross. See, the world thinks that the intelligent and the learned are the wise ones. They've got it all figured out. But God thwarts the wisdom of the wise by sending simple fishermen as his apostles. Not philosophers, not scholars, not professors, professors, not academics. He sends fishermen. And he sent them to proclaim a message of a cross. A message about the power of God displayed in the cross. This message isn't one of a system that's a little bit better or a little bit more consistent as if the gospel and these human philosophies are competing for a slight edge in terms of wisdom. God has sent his people to proclaim a different message, a message of the cross, a message of foolishness in the eyes of the world, a message that destroys the wisdom of this age when it proclaims the power of God. That's the God we serve, the God. And this is what God has done in the cross. He's destroyed human wisdom. But how? How has he done this? How has God in the cross destroyed human wisdom? Well, we can look at verses 21 and 22. And where we see that God reveals the foolishness of the worldly wise. God reveals the foolishness of the worldly wise man. 
The wise of this age tend to have two different but related reactions to God and his word of the cross. That's how Paul breaks it down. Men either tend to seek for signs or they seek for wisdom. That's what Paul says in verse 22, that the Jews sought after signs and the Greeks sought after wisdom. Paul takes a category from verse 18, the perishing, and he further breaks that category down into two groups, Jews and Greeks, those who sought signs and those who sought wisdom. But why does he do that? What does he mean by that? And what does it have to do with us, you might ask? We are neither Jews nor Greeks, most of us here that I can tell. And there's not many of either of those groups around here. So what does it have to do with us? Well, I'll tell you. Both of those groups are united together in this. They try to mask their unbelief under the guise of human wisdom. They think that they are wise but their human wisdom shows their unbelief. Consider the Jews. They were always looking for signs, Paul says. This happened throughout Jesus' ministry. You can look at Matthew 12, 38, Matthew 16, 1, John 4, 48. All of these mention this. People would come up to Jesus and they'd ask for a sign. Prove yourself to be true. Vindicate yourself by doing something miraculous. Then, then we'll believe. Then we will admit that what you're saying is actually true. See, what they're doing actually reveals a deeper issue. They were not open-minded, neutral observers coming to rationally decide whether or not to believe this message from God. You see, they wanted to put themselves in the place of judge. They were making demands upon the Son of God so that they could evaluate Him, they could assess Him, they could test His credentials. They want to place, take the place of judging God Himself. Do you see the unbelief and the pride wrapped up in such a posture? Do you see the irony of the creatures coming and trying to judge the Creator? What folly, what pretension. But we must also see that this demand for signs isn't unique to first century Jews. It's, one, it's what is underneath any demand, any condition that we put upon God for our belief and our submission to Him. I'll trust in God when he heals me or when he heals my child. I'll come to Jesus as long as I get to keep my independence. I'll joyfully become a Christian once God reveals himself to me in a manner of my choosing. I'll spend more time in God's word and prayer when my marriage gets a little better. I'll submit to God when he submits to my timeline. Or I'll acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he delivers the act of my choosing. See, in each case, I'm the one assessing him. I'm determining if he is worthy of my submission and praise. I'm not coming to Jesus on his terms. I'm coming to him on my terms, the ones that I dictate, and he must acquiesce to me if he wants my company. We can demand signs just like the Jews. But Paul says there's another reaction to God's word, just like to be like the Greeks who sought wisdom. See, they wanted a coherent system. They wanted a logic. They wanted a consistent worldview that explained everything in terms of cause and effect. They weren't demanding signs like the Jews, but they were doing something just as problematic. The Greeks were concerned with identifying an all-encompassing explanation for how the universe works, whether that explanation was chaos and order or motion or the gods on Olympus, or the fundamental elements. They were looking 
for whatever they could find to explain the universe according to their systems. But do you see the problem there? They want to remain under the delusion that their human wisdom allows them to explain everything. They think that they're scientific, that they're in control, that they're powerful. God, indeed, if he exists, must meet the high standards of my academic and philosophical prowess. He must somehow fit into my system if he's, if he's to be given any sort of hearing. And we see the same temptation today. God is reshaped to fit into the boxes of our choosing. Christianity must fit within my categories of injustice or oppression or of evolution and natural selection or of American exceptionalism or of capitalistic greed or whatever the lens is, whatever our preferred system is, we shrink, we contort, we twist, we even trim in order God to fit God into that box. And in doing so, we seek to become the judge and the cross inevitably gets left out. In both the Jews and the Greeks, there's this profound sense of pride, a profound self-centeredness. God is not believed on his own merits. God must prove himself worthy of my belief. And only if he meets the demands of my choosing. I'll come to him when it all makes sense to me. Or once somebody explains how sin and evil work together in my, to my satisfaction. Or once I can see how his hand is working in providence and I can explain it, then I'll submit myself. When I can see what's going on and it matches my judgment of what is right and proper. Have you felt such a pull like this in your life? Where you don't understand what God is doing. You don't understand why he's making you do something. Why he's making you experience some trial. Why he's giving you some kind of burden. And you're tempted to disbelieve because you can't see the logic in it all. See, unbelief isn't a sin that magically departs us once we come to faith either. It can follow us around. It can tempt us in any moment to doubt God, doubt his power, doubt his goodness, doubt his love, just like the Jews and the Greeks doubted God. If you discover such unbelief in your heart, then the solution that Paul would prescribe is to consider the foolishness of the cross. That's the irony of this whole passage. The whole passage is dripping with irony. The Jews demanded signs, but they failed to see God's most prominent sign, the cross, Jesus dying for sins on the cross. And the Greeks demanded wisdom, but they failed to see the all-encompassing wisdom, indeed the singular key that unlocks all wisdom, and that's found on Calvary. And of specific encouragement to believers who find themselves again doubting God. And see what Paul says in verse 21. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save. It pleased God to save through the, the cross. God didn't begrudgingly commit to this plan to save sinners through the cross. It wasn't his backup plan. Indeed, that was his plan all along. To send a liberating king but a king who was also the suffering servant, to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, but to do so at the great cost of him being bruised himself. And it pleased him to do so. Christ didn't die in your, in your place begrudgingly. He's no reluctant savior. In his great wisdom, he willingly became a fool to the world in order to save those of us foolish enough to trust in his death. Indeed, scripture says 
that it was for the joy set before him that he willingly endured the cross. Jesus is not ashamed of you and your sin of unbelief. He didn't have to be coaxed into redeeming you. He's not afraid to look upon your sin and your defilement and your unbelief. He knows it already more intimately than you ever could. And yet it pleased him to save through the cross. When you find remaining unbelief, when you find yourself playing the judge over God and his actions and demanding signs from him as the condition of your belief, then remember again the Jesus who hung on the cross. It pleased him to save those who were guilty of prideful unbelief. He joyfully undertook the mission to redeem an arrogant and haughty bride. He doesn't regret his decision to die for you. In fact, scripture says he ever lives to make intercession for you. When you come to him confessing your unbelief, he delights to wash you again. He applies his merits of his atonement to you again in acting as your great high priest. He delights in it. He delights in the work. He delights in service to his bride. He delights in washing her and making her as white as snow again. You are not a burden to this Christ. It pleased him to save you through the cross. Your redemption is not his chore. You are the apple of his eye. And he is pleased in his work as your redeemer and your great high priest. God was pleased to save through the foolishness of the cross. Finally, let's move into verses 23 through 25 and see our calling to foolishness. Our calling to foolishness. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's calling and the calling of every disciple is to believe, is to trust, and is to proclaim a message that the world thinks is foolishness. There's no way around it. Jews want signs, Greeks want wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And it is not insignificant that Paul boils down the Christian message in this way, to Christ crucified. You see, you'll not offend the world by preaching Jesus alone. Lots of people preach Jesus as a good man. Lots of people preach him as a wise teacher, as a role model, as a social activist, as an advocate for the oppressed, as a cultural revolutionary. The world doesn't find any of that foolish. In fact, much of the world will love you if you just preach that. But that's not what Paul calls the church to proclaim. We preach Christ crucified. A Christ that died. A Christ that was under a curse. A Christ that absorbed wrath, that atoned for sin. A Christ that's bloody and bruised and broken and did it all for a sinful people who would never have chosen him if left to themselves. That's whom we proclaim. That's whom we preach. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews and Gentiles, Paul says. And notice the subtle shift in Paul's language in verse 23. He goes from Greeks to Gentiles. Nobody is outside of that categorization. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. That's everybody. That's the whole world, whether you're red or yellow or black or white. You're going to find this message foolish until you see it through the eyes of faith. But that's the good news of this foolish message. But to those who were called, verse 24, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power 
and the wisdom of God. The good news is that out of the whole world, out of the Jews and the Gentiles, out of all those who mocked and sneered and scoffed at the message of the cross, God chooses to call. So we're not without hope. We're not without help. God has chosen to call some from the world, some from the perishing, some from the four corners of the globe to reveal his power and his wisdom to them. He's worked in their hearts through the preaching of a foolish message of the cross and opened their eyes through the gift of faith. By faith, we come to see that what we thought was wisdom is actually rubbish and what we thought was foolishness, that's the message of the cross, is actually pure wisdom. God shows us That we're actually not as righteous as we thought. That we're proud. We're vain. We're lustful. We're greedy. We're selfish. But His grace doesn't just show us that. He also gives us eyes to see the beauty of what happens on Calvary. See, Christ takes on our pride, our vanity, our lust, our greed, our selfishness. and He takes every drop of the punishment that we had earned and He bears it. He takes it on his body on the tree and he takes it all the way to the grave. The wrath that we had earned, he has assuaged. It's been absorbed. He's wrung dry every drop of it that we had earned. And not only that, he was raised from the grave three days later. God accepted the sacrifice of Christ in our place, confirming our life and our own resurrection to come. All of this foolishness has been made to be wisdom to us because we've been called by God from darkness into light. We've been regenerated, born again, given new life in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. And that great news can be yours tonight too. If you're stumbling over this gospel, if you struggle to understand what I'm saying, what Paul is saying, what the Bible is saying, then I urge you, don't stop investigating until you've come to see Christ crucified. The stakes are too high. The stakes are your own soul in eternity. Read the scriptures and see what they say of this Christ. Read the gospel and see how he died for sins and was raised. Read the book of Acts and see how thousands of people came to believe this foolishness. And they believed it with such tenacity they were willing to die for it. Nothing can explain this kind of radical transformation. And nothing can explain it in Paul's own life. Nothing short of the power of God working in his life. Paul himself went from the most devout of Jews... Highly trained, highly accomplished, well-respected, zealous, powerful, and wise in the eyes of the world. But he gave it all up. He became a fool in the eyes of the world. And how do we explain that? How does Paul explain it? He explains it through the power of the cross. The power of God manifested in Christ crucified. That's his only explanation. That's his only reason. Christ Crucified is the power and the wisdom of God. The feebleness of a crucified Messiah hanging on a tree. The moment of apparent greatest weakness, the cross, has actually become the moment of greatest strength and power. And the foolishness of a suffering servant being crucified, the moment of apparent greatest folly, is actually the moment of greatest wisdom. And that's because God's plan of saving sinful people, while also retaining his perfect righteousness and justice, all comes together on the cross. God judges sin, maintaining his holiness and righteousness and justice, but he does it through judging his own son, thus glorifying his own mercy and grace. You see, mercy and justice 
kiss at the cross. That's the power and the wisdom of God. And that's what proves Paul's final statement. That the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The foolishness of God, that is the unbelievable story of a God who would die for his people, is actually wiser than men. Men could never come up with such a plan. Men would never design a deity who would lower himself to such depths out of love and mercy. Man would never imagine a powerful God who would stoop so low in his mercy and who would show such mercy to undeserving and hateful people. But that's exactly what God has done. God uses the crib in Bethlehem as a cradle for his royal son. And he selects the cruelest of instruments, the cross, to be the death of his divine emissary. God, in his apparent weakness, has demonstrated his strength over man. He's shown his humility, and in doing so, highlights our own pride. He's shown his mercy, highlighting our own lack of it. And he's shown his justice highlighting our own sinfulness. And he's done it all on the cross in Christ crucified. God's wisdom, the wisdom of a crucified Savior on a cross, is wiser than man's wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than man's. And this is a lesson that we have to constantly relearn and repeat to ourselves throughout the Christian life. See, we're wired to constantly fight for strength, for status, to posture and to preen ourselves, to dictate terms, to dominate. That's not God's way. That's not what Christ has done. That's not the path of strength and wisdom and virtue. In fact, true strength and wisdom, it looks like death. It looks like dying to myself, to my preferences, to my desires, to my ambitions, to my needs, so that others might be served in love. It's putting others first, out of love, just like Christ has done on the cross. In fact, true wisdom and true strength looks like what Jesus preached. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, For they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. If you want to be a son of God. Full heirs to the life that was bought by Jesus on the cross. Then come to Jesus today and make yourself a fool. And believe on this foolish message. Of the God man dying in the place of sinners. For it's only when you become a fool. That you truly become wise. And only when you become weak that you can stand in his strength. Let's pray. Holy Father, it's it's hard to even believe sometimes the message of the cross, that you would come, send your son, that he would live the perfect life that we would never live, that he would die the death that we had earned, you would so love us to redeem us out of bondage out of slavery to sin to give us new life to give us your holy spirit to grant us eternal life because of the faithfulness of christ father help us to remember that it was indeed your pleasure it pleased you it delighted you to save sinners 
through this foolish message that we proclaim. Lord, we ask that you would indeed save sinners through this message. In Christ's name, amen.